no big deal. All right, awesome. Let's kick this off. This is the hot aisle. Good morning, Brian. How are you this morning? I'm doing. I'm doing fantastic. I am. Uh, Where are you at from, today? Uh, I'm in Hopkinson. It's um, so I'm at a briefing center. Just got done with some some work, and now we're going to do some more podcast work. So let's uh, let's kick this thing off, man. Awesome. Well, cool. So let's kick this off um, with with roughly 80% of the companies recently polled, and and uh, this is going to be by our guest company, um, experimenting with containers, and and in fact. Roughly 80% of those people are actually using those containers in, in production. I, I think it's safe to say that this whole container thing is is definitely not going away. And and furthermore, the need for uh, persistent data in these containerized applications um, is becoming more and more of a thing. The mindset has changed that persistence needs to be there. So our goal today is to educate you on the who, the what, and the why for container persistence. So today... We have a special guest, uh, Sandeepan, who is the Senior Vice President of Engineering and Operations at Cluster HQ. Sandeepan, how are you doing this morning? Very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So, Sandeepan, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you recently made a shift uh, career change over to Cluster HQ. So talk about kind of your background and what led you to Cluster HQ. I joined Cluster HQ in January from uh, having spent about 10 years at Google where I um, ran uh, data and uh, storage platforms. And at Google, we have um, uh, an incredible scale of uh, NoSQL and also structured storage, which are typically consumer-facing, but also retailed through Google Cloud Platform. Uh, and prior to Google, I spent about 10 years at Oracle, where um, I was in the heart of the beast uh, doing uh, SQL database work. Okay, wow, lustrous career. Multiple um, multiple people probably trying to trying to ping you and figure out how the heck they can get in contact you and learn more. And luckily, we got you on the show today, and we're super happy to have you, Brian. You're going to yeah. say something? Yeah, I actually, I'm I'm really curious. Um, you know, as we look at people's backgrounds, there's a lot of fun things. Your your time doing product management and strategy around video infrastructure was that prior to YouTube? Um, no, this was uh, shortly after uh, Google acquired YouTube, and YouTube had infrastructure that was uh, not on Google's data centers, and I spent some time uh, rolling that infrastructure uh, into Google data centers and uh, doing uh, various interesting things like uh, dynamic transcoding and the massive uh, caching of the hothead of YouTube videos that is needed to be able to uh, deliver these videos quickly. So it turns out that uh, at the heart of it, the capture, encoding, decoding, caching, um, etc., of, of YouTube is a very large storage infrastructure problem where the processing has to be split up and uh, spread across various nodes. Uh, and Google has uh, a um, containerized infrastructure. A lot of the Kubernetes uh, type uh, uh, infrastructure came from Google's internal, uh, Borg and, and Omega and, and so on. So we were doing uh, a lot of these things that we are going to talk about in the podcast today, you know, way before they reached the popular imagination. Is there, uh, and so I'm always fascinated by video infrastructure just from some of the things I've done in my background. Was there one like really kind of key thing as this came in that you're, that was like, Nobody, you really hadn't really had to deal with that challenge before. 
And it was probably the most fun part of the entire thing where you're like, wow, I learned a lot from this. And that was a fun problem to solve. That would have to be dynamic uh, uh, transcoding. So normally when you get upload a YouTube video, you know, it is stored in a particular format that your camera has provided. But people want to be able to consume that video on a variety of devices, Windows, Macs, phones of different kinds, uh, you know, maybe some on particular uh, Xboxes and things like that. So you have to take the input video and you have to, you know, process it so that it is available in, in multiple formats. And you have to appreciate that there are, um, you know, millions of videos being uh, input or uploaded every hour. So dynamically taking each video and spreading its transcoding across hundreds of different machines by sort of chunking the video, having each little chunk being transcoded on a particular machine, and then putting it all back together so that the video can be uh, viewed all over the world, where the transcoded chunks can actually come from very many different um, you know, local disks on different machines in, in the data center. So when you are looking at a streaming video on YouTube, you have the sense of permanence of this thing, but these are really, you know, little chunks which have been processed independently and um, um, served from indeed independent locations. So that distribution was very exciting. Is uh, and that you just made me think of something. Is that is that uh, distribution um, geographically dispersed outside of different data centers for the exact same video, or is it just dispersed inside the you know a specific region for that one person who's watching it? Is it? I mean, could it be part of my videos coming from California? And the other parts coming from New York, or is it just coming from multiple locations inside of the same data data center in California, for instance? Yeah. So typically, videos are cached, you know, at some location, a uh, population center close to you. And as different people using the same videos, and you know, there are probably a hundred thousand videos that all of us watch regularly. Those things are cached locally. Uh, for the things that are not cached, the long, long tail of, of user-generated content, they typically are on different machines within the same data center. But uh, I do anticipate a world where there are longer and longer videos and you know there is really no reason for them to even be within the same data center. So you could get the first hour of a, of a movie from California and the second hour from, from Virginia. Uh, and uh, those things are entirely possible, especially as you get into people, uh, you know, recording hours of uh, dashboard footage from cars and, and things like that. Those things, you know, there's no real reason for them to be co-located. Oh, cool. So speaking of, um, you know, getting uh, videos and mobile devices and, you know, things like that, we do a segment every week called This Week in Tech History. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the elephant in the room. But this week in 2016, the new Apple iPhone 7 is released. So people are lining up right now around the world. Um, I've heard that they're already back ordered. And in fact, um, if you go into a store, you'll just be putting one on order. I don't know how true that is, but um, certainly interesting. Um, some of the some of the main things that I took away from the announcement were. The phone is uh, water resistant, and and when I heard that, I thought it was just you can splash it and be okay. But what I read about it was it can be underwater for thirty minutes, up to one meter deep, which was 
pretty cool because uh, I, I do have those problems sometimes. It's got a 12 megapixel camera. And then the biggest thing for me was removing the headphone jack and then replacing that with the lightning port. Um, so lots of, uh, I wouldn't say innovative, but uh, workarounds for, for that issue. But uh, Sandeep, and, uh, where are you, you know, I know you're a Google guy, so what are your thoughts on the, uh, on the iPhone? Um, you know, I personally use uh, an Android and, and always have. Um, I heard a lot of good things about the iPhone, and uh, it's certainly a iconic device like many of, of Apple's. Um, I did hear people were talking about the removal of the jack. It seems to have caused a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, angst in, in some quarters. And uh, um, I heard you could not be streaming um, audio while you're charging the phone, things like that. So uh, it'll be interesting, uh, you know, how we, you, you know, adapt to some of these things. Uh, there is always a transition which uh, seems to be uh, hard, but then you get used to it. And a, you know, slimmer device where you don't have to worry about carrying headphones and jacks and, and things like that in, that those are uh, no doubt going to stay with us for a long time. So these are yeah. all, yeah, and these are all fun things that we love to talk about, right? Like uh, somebody makes a change and it, it makes us all want to talk about it. And sometimes our opinions are completely baseless and it's still good to have opinions regardless. And, you know, they, but we, these, these innovations or whatever we might want to call them are, are reasons why we got started in technology, right? We saw something and we're like, that's cool. I want some more. Uh, and one of the things we love to talk to people about is what got you started in technology. So, there was that time, I mean, like, you know, everybody's got, like, my dad did this with me, or I was at school, and some teacher did this with me. Where, where, what got you started in technology and put you through, uh, you know, eventually the Indian Institute of Technology and into Google and all these kind of things, Oracle and then Google? What, where'd you start from? Yeah, I was going to um, undergraduate uh, school in engineering, and uh, the way my undergraduate program at uh, IIT Kanpur was structured was that you got two years of common core, and no matter what kind of engineer you became, an uh, electrical one or a mechanical one or a computer science one, you you know got two years of sort of rigorous uh, common engineering, in, including you know learning how to dig mines and, and things like that. Uh, along the things that were thrown to me in this... Wait, hold uh, on real quick. Did you say dig mines? Well, there was a metallurgical course which included uh, instruction in how to, you know, progressively shore up structures as you were tunneling under them. Um, it's not something that I have used, but it has given me a great deal of appreciation for what actually happened when I look at movies where I see, you know... Uh, people tunneling underground, and uh, I'm always thinking of, well, there has to be that I-beam over there with this particular stress profile and things like that. So many of these things have stayed with me. And the thinking was that, uh, uh, you know, you have to know a little bit about everything to be a successful engineer who can fearlessly go and uh, make almost everything your business. Um, and so, but part of that was uh, they taught us uh, a list programming um, as a introductory uh, course in, uh, you know, structuring thought, really. And that got me hooked, and I didn't look back. That's that's really cool. So was there, was there any, like, what did you do after that, right? So you took the LISP course, and you started doing those things. What's next for you? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I, I saw how much fun it was to think about how you, when you watch movies, you know about doing mines. Like, as you're like, okay, I'm, I'm taking this on with, with both hands. 
Where did you go from there? Well, from the Lisp programming course, uh, I signed up for a um, summer program where um, there were a lot of CAD uh, computer-aided design drawings being uh, prepared, and this was a time when you know CAD tools were hot and everybody was converting uh, you know uh, airports and uh, you know businesses and various other structures to computer-aided design uh, layouts, and then programmatically analyzing them for various uh, purposes. So there was a, a funded industry-funded project, and I started you know, working on, on CAD systems and wireframing and so on. And that gave me an appreciation of what computer science at scale is. Uh, you can do things like um, you can estimate, for example, how much... Um, concrete is being used for public works across the state by analyzing a whole bunch of CAD drawings and doing various kinds of analyses. And these things are actually uh, analytically accurate. So it gives you an appreciation of all the different things that we can do just by, by computing at scale. And in that, you know, back in those days, um, you were limited in terms of what you could scale towards uh, by you know the hardware that was involved and the networking that was involved. And progressively, as uh, Moore's law has made both compute and networking, uh, you know, more and more powerful, doubling every eighteen months or nine months, and so on. Uh, what we can address using scale has become, you know, truly almost magical. Uh, today, I can speak into my phone, and that waveform is sent to the cloud. There is a pattern recognition somewhere which translates that waveform to uh, a, a understanding of my speech, and I can, you know, do various things with it. I can talk into um, you know, any kind of voice-driven assistant. And soon, um, you know, we talk about uh, headphone jacks being made obsolete, but the keyboard is going to go soon. Yeah, and this is why it's fun to ask people questions about how they got started, because it's clear that you started solving problems at a certain type of scale early on. And then throughout your career, it seems like that's the thing that you've really executed on pretty well, right? So there's probably problems at scale at Oracle. Clearly at Google, there's problems at scale. So now we can fast forward to Cluster HQ, and you would agree with me, I hope, that uh, Cluster HQ is solving a new type of problem at scale uh, when it comes to these ephemeral workloads um, and where they require persistence and storage. So you seem to be combining a couple of your different expertises in this new role. Is that, did, I, did I do that well? Did I sum that up accurately? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's uh, great. Uh, so... You know, as a preface to, to my transition from Google to, to Cluster HQ, uh, the data center today is uh, an incredibly powerful tool. It is like a power plant or a very large transformative utility. And where the data center is today is there are a couple of people uh, like Google and Amazon who have learned how to make very large data centers work. There are others of us who are trying to rent space on these data centers or on our own, who are still trying to script our way through the amount of automation that is needed. And the phases that I see are the you know, dumb data center, the scripted data center, and the intelligent data center, which sort of does a lot of its automatic uh, provisioning, load balancing, uh, maintenance management, alerting, and, and so on. 
Now, the moment you talk about data centers running thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of compute nodes, you get into a, a issue of managing that elasticity. Uh, the value of the data center is that you can fill the peaks of um, one workload with the troughs of another and overall bring the power of uh, having you know many, many, many different uh, computers to work at different times of the day on different problems. Now, when we talk about using these elastic resources, uh, it is clear that you cannot only elasticize the compute part of a data center without also elasticizing the associated networking and storage and, and so on. And uh, a few years ago, in 2014, uh, a big revolution started happening in the world of compute in the form of containers, which are in some sense for data centers, the successor technology to virtual machines. And there have been you know, billions of these created and uh, the future of the data center looks containerized. Yeah, I would certainly agree. And I think that your, your, um, you guys just did a 2016 Cluster HQ did a, a survey of about, I think about three to 400 people, uh, businesses. And what they found when I read was roughly called 80% of, of businesses or the, you know, people interviewed were considering and looking at containers. And then, uh, close to another 80% were actually using them in production. So, uh, we're, we're, I think that was, conducted when you were around. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, that survey, um, you know, how it was constructed and then and what you saw as your, your the kind of the overarching theme. So we survey developers all the time. This was primarily a developer survey and we reached out using multiple forums such as, uh, you know, Docker's uh, uh, show, DockerCon. Um, as well as other web sources. And we ask people questions on what where they are in the adoption cycle of uh, containers. And uh, for since their growth in, in 2014, there have been a lot of people who have been trying containers in proof of concept prototypes and so on. And gradually, you know, they have been, uh, you know, going up the curve um, uh, towards production uh, along the lines that, that you mentioned. And uh, in this world, I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, Marco Polo returning to Venice from China, because at Google, we used um, essentially containerized infrastructure to great scale and for a great deal of time. Um, so just as Marco Polo went to China and then came back to Venice and said, you know, there is a thing called paper money and you will have it and you will love it. Uh, so, um, in the same way, I sort of feel that, uh, you know, having seen what these densely packed compute clusters can achieve in terms of uh, business value, um, it will come to you and you will love it. Is there, so, I mean, obviously when we talk about Google and Amazon and people who've solved this, uh, these kind of problems, and now you're trying to kind of like, uh, consumerize or democratize these same things. Are there are there principles at the at that scale that you have to throw out the window um, in order to apply them at this kind of maybe smaller scale, maybe not like tiny, but smaller scale than than the hyperscalers have to deal with? 
Well, the hyperscalers also have a lot of bodies, right? So a Google data center is managed by thousands of professionals. But when you are running your own services on AWS, one of the purposes is to be able to use those you know, thousands of professionals to work for you so that you don't have to scale your cloud in exactly the same way as a utility sort of scales its infrastructure. So the trick for Google, Amazon, or anybody running a PaaS is to insulate their users from all the complexity, which is where a degree of, of software comes in and, and Cluster HQ has um, you know, software that, that makes that uh, administration easy. Uh, so it's not actually the case that uh, in order to provide Google's infrastructure to everybody else, you have to be exactly of, of Google size. You can consume it, I think, um, uh, at uh, you know much lower points of, of scale and complexity, and that is one of the attractions. This is why people are flocking to cloud uh, applications. That you know, I can go to AWS and I can sign up for a bunch of uh, EC2 instances uh, or EBS block storage. It is like going and buying something from a shop, and 15 minutes later, I'm up and running. I could be you know serving traffic from there. So this um, you know, agility has been helped by you know, hiding a lot of the complexity and, and may that continue. Uh, there are, of course, other things uh, you know, for the public cloud people, they have to take a lot of uh, data stewardship issues, which uh, you know, sometimes when you are small scale, you don't worry so much about um, data location and privacy and, and so on, which are also incredibly important. But, uh, you know, data tends to have a different narrative associated with it compared to stateless compute only. Uh, when you are in the business of data, you have to, um, you know, you sort of notice it if it's not available and uh, if it gets compromised, uh, you know, somebody yells at you. So data has, has gravity and um, with Cluster HQ, um, which is, a, you know, we have a product, open source product called Flocker which is a container data volume manager for uh, Dockerized applications, uh, we face uh, and solve a lot of these uh, data gravity issues. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, we obviously know you from the partnership with some of the stuff that you've done with the MC, but obviously your partnership goes considerably wider than that. So um, I saw some recent announcements with Cominario, but you also work with the NetApps of the world, AWS, Google, um, talk to us about the ecosystem where 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 Flocker in particular uh, where works and 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 how are you looking to to broaden that ecosystem? Flocker acts as a common control service for Docker platforms, and it integrates with various storage platforms versus array specific drivers. Uh, since it's an open source product. Um, Anyone can write their own Flocker drivers, uh, and EMC has contributed a lot of code, um, some working with us, some independently, for Scale.io drivers, Extreme.io, VMAX, Copperhead, VNX, Unity, and, and so on. And uh, because of EMC's uh, you know, breadth and depth in the storage market, those are some of our most uh, widely used drivers. Uh, but as a open source broad platform, we you know welcome all uh, other uh, parties uh, trying to write uh, storage drivers, and we have written some, including generic ones for the Google Compute Engine, for uh, AWS, for software-defined storage such as Hedwig, uh, and indeed the various other storage vendors have also written Flocker drivers. So. 
um, uh, there is a, a large and growing portfolio of, of these drivers available. And what these drivers enable you to do is to seamlessly run stateful microservices uh, and run databases such as Mongo, Cassandra, Postgres, MySQL in containers and then orchestrate and schedule your container applications across a cluster that has these particular storage backends providing uh, reliable storage for the bits. Okay, cool. Yeah, so talk to me about this. So, so I guess talk to us about, first of all, why why Cluster HQ and Flocker was even kind of conceived. Because if we look at just the containerized world, there's the, there's the ability to do something called like a Docker volume, for instance, right? So talk to us about the 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 pros and the cons and and why you need you need to develop Flocker to provide data persistence outside of the container. When containers were first conceptualized, um, there was this feeling that uh, the way to get them to scale is by not putting any state in them. And in fact, uh, they came up with a 12-factor way of designing microservices, and the central tenets of which was thou shalt not put state in microservices, because if thou dost, uh, it will stop scaling. Uh, now, people um, uh, you know, heard that, and they earnestly tried to follow it, and very quickly they realized that um, you know, services need state. It's not much fun to build things that have no data, need no data, depend on no data. You know, yeah, you can sort of you know move a red button slowly across the screen and watch it turn blue, but you know the business utility of that is is low. So people started grappling with the the issue of state, and um, there, while Docker has a volume abstraction, what happens is that when a compute node moves from from one particular machine to another, uh, it starts up with an empty volume. So it doesn't remember the state associated with a volume that it was already working on. Flocker started to address that need. Um, uh, and a typical se sequence of operations is as follows. A Docker application starts on a particular node and let's say it wants to use a data set of some kind as its persistent volume. Docker asks a Flocker plugin for that data set. And we have a control service running and the control service notifies an agent on that compute node that, hey, you should have data set D. And the agent finds that data set and mounts it to that particular node. If the node crashes and goes away, the control service again tells the agent on another node to find the appropriate data set. And we do the programmatic mounting and unmounting of data sets. And we keep track of which particular compute node was working off which data set. That's so in reading, yeah, I, go ahead, Brent. Yeah, go ahead. No, all right. So in, in reading about this, I, it, it, it looks like it was it was tough to find the actual call volume that was associated with the container. So it just made it a nightmare of, of managing that. So what I'm hearing is that you're 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 helping to manage um, identifying what volumes are associated with what containers to make it considerably easier, and then also. Um, the idea of being able to move between, call it different different servers, for instance, yeah. that have different drives and that the, the data is not sharded across them. 
Yeah, so this is what we call storage orchestration. And just as Docker itself is orchestrating the compute, we orchestrate the storage by keeping track of uh, which compute node is using what storage. So now, you know, a question more for you as you, I mean, so you told us why Cluster HQ is here and you told us a bit about Flocker and we'll get back into what else you're doing and what you might be doing, but but, but specific to you, right? You're at, you're at Google doing hyperscale. You've done a lot of cool things there. Uh, and there becomes an opportunity somewhere before January to come to Cluster HQ to work and work on, you know, the things that you're doing. It feels like there was a kind of like a key thing or a couple of key things that you wanted to accomplish as part of coming in and taking over your employment um, that were part of like your your agreement to come into Cluster HQ. So I'd like to find out like, you know, you are you had some conversations, you probably had some coffees and you're like, man, I really wanna do that. I, I wanna go take that challenge on and I wanna make that happen. Um, so I'd like you to share with us what it was that compelled you to come over and work on these things and what they are. What I felt at, uh, you know, in my past role at Google was um, the, first of all, containers are going to take over the world. Second, um, storage associated with containers is poorly thought out. And it seemed like there was a ecosystem that was broader than just Google's infrastructure. Um, there was a world of Docker. There was a world of Mesosphere. There's a world of, you know, Kubernetes, which is, open source from Google, but is getting a lot of contributions from Red Hat, Red Hat and, and CentOS and, and those folks. And there is the you know world of AWS, there's the world of Azure, um, and the private clouds on-premises deployments of uh, EMC, which are all moving in various ways to pass. So the breadth of storage is something that requires a non-Google approach to be able to, to succeed. Uh, succeed not in commercial terms, but just succeed as an ecosystem that provides a broad and capable solution and, and solves some real problems. So um, I started you know, looking at the intersection of containers and storage, not as a vendor-specific problem, but as an uh, ecosystem problem. And that led to uh, a lot of conversations with the folks at Cluster HQ on what are the contours of the solution. And you know, some of the principal tenets were, well, we want to be open source um, so that uh, there isn't the you know, vendor lock-in that uh, prevents people from broadly adopting useful technologies. Um, and you know, within EMC, we have seen Copperhead and, and so on you know, also have that, that thinking. The second was that um, in order to make this available to everybody, you have to create a set of partnerships with Docker, with EMC, with NetApp, with Hedwig, uh, with Google um, Persistent Disk that makes sure that the technology is optimized for all different use cases. So within the Flocker world, we not only have drivers, we have various tiers of performance, you know, gold server drones to be able to um, utilize the various latency profiles and uh, other, um, uh, you know, secret sources of, of individual storage backends. So it became clear that, you know, the breadth, uh, you know, beyond Google was needed uh, from the standpoint of open source, from the standpoint of working with a broader set of 
um, you know, vendors, northbound and southbound. Um, so when I, you know, started looking at this, it became uh, clear to me that this can only be um, accomplished um, within a very open source minded, nimble uh, startup with, with grand, grand ambition. That's cool. So um, you said something that's interesting to me because I, it doesn't, honestly, it doesn't quite compute. And uh, since I don't understand their environment and obviously they have a lot of good secrets, it doesn't, um, it doesn't compute to me that Google doesn't have almost like one of everything, even Amazon or everything else. I mean, while they have their own storage and things like that, uh, it uh, it doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't have like one of everything or frankly 15 of everything where they've had to solve the same storage issue across multiple ecosystems just from the nature of their size and the rolling deployment where they're constantly creating new technologies and you know supporting the existing ones at the exact same time. So is that... Storage at Google is actually pretty standardized. So um, what happens is, uh, you know, each of the... Um, computers in, in a rack in a data center has a certain number of disks and those disks come from, you know, either one of two vendors, essentially, uh, you know, commodity disk makers. And those things are stitched together in a software-defined storage or virtual file system called the Google file system. And everything else is sort of built on, on top. And these are very, very powerful pieces of software. The people who wrote them were uh, incredibly thoughtful, and they are all described in you know, the Google file system paper and the big table paper and, and so on. But Google has never attempted to uh, build or stitch together a fabric which has uh, you know, some uh, scale I.O., some extreme I.O., some local disk, uh, I think the reality for everybody else is much less pristine than a organic data center has allowed Google to do. Ah, so, uh, okay, I get it now. So um, as this gets commoditized and consumerized and kind of democratized beyond the hyperscalers, um, their opportunities and their, their environments are you know maybe not as clean or as easy as somebody who's doing things at that scale and the kind of things that they can do. And therefore there's a larger challenge to kind of integrate the, the diversity that they have to deal with. And hybrid cloud, I think is a reality that a lot of EMC's customers are going to face uh, where, you know, you want to take some of your services and put them on AWS or, or Google, but there are going to be a lot of services that you will want to hold on to in your data center. And these things will, you know, not really, you know, entirely migrate uh, anytime soon. So you will need to have similar software stack, which can run in the public cloud, in virtual public clouds, uh, virtual private clouds, and in, uh, uh, on-premises setups, and uh, while some of the you know core thinking of of products like Flocker is to be able to seamlessly provide you uh, functionality, sort of no matter what kind of cloud you run in. So, question regarding uh, data persistence: If we look in a let's just call it a bare metal world, right? So it sounds like there's um, the ability to hook into software to find storage uh, in addition to standard SANS and, and NASs. But if we look at just a just a cluster of 
bare metal servers that are aggregated together that the containers run on. How are you? How does how does Flocker enable uh, data persistence in that environment? Uh, maybe I missed it, but uh, and then and then are you ensuring that the data is persisted somewhere on a different on a different server than where the container actually lives? Yeah. So Cluster HQ and Flocker are not in the business of storing bits. If you have a bare metal environment, you typically have your own storage, or you run something like Ceph, which is a um, you know, store, open source software uh, storage stack on, on top. You can run Cinder type, you know, block storages. Uh, and we have, say, a Cinder driver. And we would use uh, that driver to talk to whatever storage you have provisioned, which sits underneath Cinder to, to store its, um, you know, blocks. So one of the strengths of, uh, you know, this open source ecosystem thinking is that we don't want to mandate a particular type of storing the, uh, you know, volumes associated with containers using our storage, but we will provide drivers to whatever storage you provision. What we will do is we will make that storage work very well with container works by keeping track of which particular storage nodes needs to be bound to which particular compute, what happens if one fails, how to move things over. So this world of you know small units that are uh, sort of working semi-independently needs a lot of orchestration uh, in order to pull off. And Docker provides the orchestration for the container compute part of it and Flocker provides the storage orchestration. And so you you uh, you gave me an opportunity here to ask a question that uh, I was thinking about and couldn't remember what I was trying to get to. So you mentioned a couple of OpenStack um, products there, right? So Ceph and um, Cinder and things like that. And I was curious from, from, from your perspective, and I hope you have the data, when you see these deployments, right? So there's you can deploy Docker in a bunch of different places. You can also use containers, or you could have an OpenStack environment, things like that. Where are most of your deployments coming from today? Is it uh, a bare metal type container environment with you know some sort of software-defined storage being provided to it? Um, is it uh, OpenStack with software-defined or with a you know traditional array behind it? Where or is it? Are there VMware environments where this is being leveraged? What are you seeing? Uh, or even something else, Hyper-V, anything else? Or is it all cloud-based? I mean, are you ninety uh, percent of the consumptions in Google and Amazon? What What are you seeing? Um, I think it's a third and a third and a third. Uh, there's about a third which is um, in cloud. There's about a third which I think is in OpenStack, and the rest are, um, you know, others um, on-prem bare metal type environments. OpenStack I see mostly being used in people who are trying to stand up platforms as a service or PaaSes. There are a lot of service providers who are trying to build data centers which um, don't have to be Amazon or, or Google, but they are platforms where they aggregate uh, developers for um, you know, 10,000, 100,000, that kind of, of nodes. Uh, Swisscom is one of uh, Cluster HQ's uh, customers who are using Flocker to do storage orchestration on top of OpenStack for such a uh, PaaS or platform as a service. And I think almost every service provider uh, in the world is now thinking of providing such a modern 
platform for both internal customers as well as uh, the customers that you know telcos normally have and the driver there is a lot of people for example in europe uh, don't really want to store data in uh, aws if it means um, you know transporting across the atlantic and um, or you know uh, being limited by their country data protection and stewardship laws and, and so on so there seems to be a market for uh, the local service provider in every jurisdiction standing up a pass and using OpenStack and, um, you know, Ceph and Cinder and, and things like that. So that's about a third of the market. Another third are trying to take applications which in-house IT doesn't really want to support or at least provision because they come and go all the time. And when a developer gets a cool idea and says, you know, give me 10 machines or 50 machines to work on it, the easiest answer seems to be here's the AWS account. You set it up, you run it. Uh, but build it in a way that we can actually move it around should we have hockeystick growth at some point. If it really becomes something or if we find that the data you are dealing with is something that we would like to keep our arms around, then we'll bring it in-house. And so, you know, don't use anything that is, uh, you know, too, too exotic and uh, specific to, to a particular cloud vendor. And uh, a lot of the early development prototyping containerization that tends to happen in that public cloud environment. And about another third is uh, individual companies um, which have a large enough footprint to run their own uh, container stack. Uh, and you know there are very many large companies with enterprises which have adopted containers uh, with sufficient velocity and mass to warrant the standing up of a, a custom environment. And in those we see you know, one of everything. We, we have seen, you know, a, a lot of presence from EMC um, uh, and, uh, you know, VMs and, and bare metal and, and uh, everything else. Okay, cool. So thanks for that. Um, so what I wanted to get into, so you talked about, uh, in particular, the, the Flocker component being open source. So my question to you for, you know, I mean, obviously you guys are our company, What's your consumption model and how are you guys monetizing what you're doing? Um, I think starting out in the modern data center, uh, open source is a incredibly powerful model for people to be able to um, not only commit themselves to the a world without toll collectors, but also to be able to customize the products uh, easily. And you know where there is this little 1% feature that you want, instead of having to block on the vendor who tells you it's going to be ready you know, in the middle of next year, you can just go in and, and change the code and, um, and, and run it yourself. So that has been incredibly successful. And there have been you know, tens of thousands of, of Flocker downloads, which is you know, incredible number for the, the storage orchestration space. Um, and um, they have all, I think, been reassured by the fact that it is open source and if you need something, you can either you know, change it yourself or get somebody else to do it. Revenue-wise, I think there is uh, you know, a set of things that uh, we as the industry are sort of still trying to figure out around open source. And it's open source is not you know, anywhere near as, as lucrative yet as closed source platforms. Uh, so 
all the you know startups like us in in this space have to either rely on service revenue associated with open source or to be able to provide you know hosted closed source services which complement what you are doing with with open source so we are building out a number of other services around flocker um, uh, i'm not going to to get into uh, those today because uh, uh, we've still not launched it, but uh, hopefully, you know, the next time I come back on this show, uh, you know, a few months from now, um, we'll be able to talk about how we use the the concept of open source Flocker to provide a bunch of, uh, you know, more uh, hosted uh, uh, hub-like services around uh, managed storage orchestration. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you, because I saw it on your website Cluster HQ Volume Hub. <clears throat> That's a teaser. Oh. Um, we are going to uh, operationalize it uh, uh, in the future. But the concept is that um, today uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, Flocker volumes that you, you run, you know, pretty much independently by yourself. The question is whether you know there could be a sort of centralized hub of volumes uh, on the lines of, uh, say, a, a GitHub for for data that we could uh, you know manage for for everybody else. Um, that's about as much as I'm going to say about that topic <laughs> today, because uh, largely because you know I don't want to to get uh, you know all the listeners excited about something that doesn't. Uh, yet uh, exist in a form that allows them to, to get their hands on it. Um, but uh, watch this space. So Yeah, well, I tell you, you know, I, I, I surfed the website. Um, the the volume hub is there, and then the Dvol is there. And frankly, the, the video was pretty, pretty cool of the, of the volume hub. Um, so um, I know you're not going to talk about it, but go to the website, uh, check it out, and you can kind of see what it does. And frankly, it's pretty cool. Yeah, get yourself teased. So um, I was curious, uh, out of all this, you know, you're talking about the things you're creating, uh, and especially as we look at things like the Volume Hub, does Flocker have the ability, or does it already do it, and I'm just not aware, to be able to get kind of like um, the experience that the Volume is having from a performance and a capacity type um, data where you could aggregate that as a whole and get some sort of visualization of like, you know, these types of hubs uh, are getting these types of experiences, um, and even these types of storages are getting these types of experiences. Uh, is that the uh, do you capture any of that data, or are you simply a broker of volumes and don't worry about what's going on as far as performance or anything else? Cluster HQ started out as the broker, and it is getting more into I think the automation of those uh, orchestrations based on data that is collected. Uh, right at the beginning, remember I said that the data center is going to transform from being dumb to being scripted to being intelligent. And part of that intelligence is going to come from um, machine learning based on how we see the volumes as being used. And within the Flocker product itself, we are slowly adding telemetry so that when you have a node um, you know, migrate and new storage gets attached. If there is track of, you know, this is the amount of data that had to now be sent through a different storage area network as a result, and that storage area network developed a hotspot, well, don't do that again. Uh, so that sort of um, 
aggregation of statistics of uh, runtime usage and not only visualization but being able to put that into the placement decisions of the cluster orchestration framework itself is going to be incredibly important so because today yeah sorry go ahead no, today, a lot of this is still manual and still scripted, and there is really no reason the electric utilities and so on, they have a lot of software which dynamically brings capacity online and shunts things around and so on. And a railway network does a lot of, you know, automated switching based on, you know, what's the route that, you, you know, a particular freight should, should take. So these are all based on uh, collections of, of historic data and being able to create models on it. And that's the world that is coming uh, in the data center. Yeah, and so you, that's that's what got me curious. You mentioned the data had gravity, uh, and I was curious how much of that gravity you were uh, tracking and keeping statistics on. Um, and then if I go further, obviously you can help me in my environment. Uh, is there a potential for you to then take it all the way up with something like Volume Hub? and be able to aggregate it back and do that type of gravity analysis across everybody's, you know, Flocker environments where you have tons of them where you know that they're using the same kind of tools to really kind of get global gravity and then start to do that machine learning or predictive and say, if you have these kind of things, these are the experiences you might expect when you go to deploy this kind of stuff. Yeah, so, you know, uh, that would be cool. And to connect this back to a question you asked earlier, what did I see in this world that made me, uh, you know, uh, leave Google? And those are precisely the kinds of things which I think will come. We are at step zero of, of 20 or, or 50 or, or something like that. And the first thing to do is to just get the compute and storage hooked up. And once they are hooked up, they start emitting um, uh, signals. Um, you know, gravity is all around us, but gravity also has a signature, as the physicist will tell you. And, uh, you know, you collect all the, you know, little blips of data from gravitational events of a different kind, and that sort of helps you in some ways uh, defy gravity. Yeah, awesome. So um, we always love to ask our, ask our guests this. Um, you know, you designed your 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 tool, and Flocker was designed for a very specific thing. Um, but have you seen it used in a in a unique way that you never thought would be used? And you're like, hmm, that's pretty darn interesting. And and maybe we should consider like making that uh, part of our IP. Um, the nature of open source is that um, uh, you know IP can be added by everyone. So we don't. Um, claim uh, morally or, or otherwise, um, you know, credit for you know every innovation that uh, that Flocker has has done, but we do see a lot of people using um, Flocker uh, for you know really high stress production applications, and that uh, you know the when I joined about um, you know eight or nine months ago, uh, we didn't really think that. Uh, this stack would be so much deployed in anger so quickly um, as it has turned out to be. Uh, there are, um, you know, network service uh, industry participants like Packet Networks, which are using Flocker. You know, large uh, telcos uh, are using uh, Flocker in their passes. There are, um, you know, industries in in health management which are using uh, you know Flocker. So 
um, my you know surprise, if anything, has been you know how quickly these things have have gotten into production because people do see the economic advantage of uh, containers and Flocker is the storage orchestrator that was first to market that everybody you know knows to use in in some way. So it's not so much a novel use as the depth of usage that has been interesting. And and so you, you you know you mentioned a couple other things. You've we've talked about the industry. You talked about how people are consuming these things, and it's driving me to another question, um, which is kind of like you, you know we've mentioned this is a lot for Docker and containers and things like that. You're from Google, and you've you've said Kubernetes a couple of times, and there's obviously some some technical aspects to that. Um, is there a is there now a, a strong? I mean, I I'm seeing a lot of good things coming out of Kubernetes. Uh, you know, like more and more, and it's getting pretty loud. Um, is there a focus that you can do there that would help with their success and your success together? Like, or are you have you already executed on that, and it's now to the, the next level? Um, at Swisscom, which is the example that we we talked about, um, you know, there is the ability to to take a Kubernetes orchestration framework and use it in the context of a Docker container runtime running on top of OpenStack and, and so on. So these are really stack layers. Um, so Kubernetes can run Docker containers and Flocker does work with, with Kubernetes. We are in the process of building what are called pet set controllers. So the you know world of compute has this uh, uh, my, a meme of uh, Pets versus cattle, and um, so you know your listeners have probably heard all about that. So the world of Kubernetes as a open source container uh, orchestration framework is uh, expanding rapidly, and we are in many of those conversations. And the first implementations of uh, the storage aspects of those expansions. So I think there is going to be place for multiple orchestration frameworks. Uh, Kubernetes will have a, a strong open source footprint. Um, it will be informed by Google's experience because Google still is a major contributor, though by no means the only one anymore uh, to that world. Uh, there are going to be the mesosphere type of orchestration frameworks, which are going to have a lot more enterprise on-premises um, you know, Microsoft HP type integrations, and it will be very successful in that world. And Docker has also, uh, you know, tried to add to the early success of the container engine with Swarm as an orchestration framework. Uh, so, you know, the, there will be, you know, more than one, um, but the storage problems will be similar, if not exactly the same. And there are going to be ecosystem players such as Cluster HQ, which will provide um, solutions for any orchestration stack that you want. So if you think of uh, Flocker as uh, middleware, uh, we have uh, a number of integrations on top of us, uh, north of us, which are Kubernetes, Docker Swarm, Mesosphere and a number of plugins south of us, which is, uh, you know, Scale.io, Extreme.io, Copperhead, and, and uh, Hedwig, and, and uh, others. And we sort of are the, the 
piece in the middle which hooks up what is north of us to what is south of us. In the process, uh, we intend to, um, you know, provide telemetry because we will actually see in this middleware, you know, who's talking to to what and at what bandwidth and at what latency and, and so on and be able to emit that data for aggregation and analysis. Awesome. So real quick follow up. So um, we, we talked a lot about obviously Docker containers with various orchestration engines. What about those platforms as a service, think Cloud Foundry, that although they can use Docker containers, they don't need it, right? They have their own notion of a, of a container, like a droplet internally. Um, how do you, how do you uh, work with that? So our intention is to be able to support, you know, other container runtimes, whether it be Rocket or, or LXC and, and so on. So far, the market has not really very strongly asked for it. Um, and quite frankly, given the expansion, the, the dramatic expansion of just Docker containers, we have our hands full sort of providing uh, all the north and south integrations for the Docker container world. Uh, we will see. Uh, I think there is definitely, we, we hear, you know, some degree of, of rocket from um, the, as a, as a container runtime. Um, but, uh, you know, there is uh, nothing in my mind that, uh, you know, makes the storage orchestration problem any different for any other container runtime. And uh, it's just that the, you know, if you look at it in market share terms, uh, you know, Docker containers are today what is getting a, a, an overwhelming amount of, of interest from the developers. That's super cool. And I assume there's probably some uh, behind-the-scenes conversations going on with Microsoft as well as they try to uh, eventually get this um, container thing out there where everybody's consuming it too. Is there? I assume you have thoughts there as well? Yeah, you know, Windows containers are in the in the same position that uh, everybody's trying to figure out. Um, you know, given Docker's explosive growth and you know virtual uh, you know category definition of, of this area, whether they want to to you know carve out some space where they provide similar functionality for their environment, or whether they just integrate with uh, with Docker containers, uh, you know, as is. Uh, you know, Microsoft have always been a, a strong believer in having sort of its own, um, you know, stack for, for everything. So um, I think Microsoft will have an abiding interest in providing an end-to-end -end stack for the Windows platform. Uh, and the, the dynamics of that we will see in the coming years. Sounds like fun. Well, uh, speaking of uh, the coming years, we have taken almost a year or at least 60 minutes of your time uh, it's kind of towards the end here, so we're going to shut it down. Uh, we're going to save some questions, like you said, for that next time when you, you want to come back and uh, tell us how things have evolved over time. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, we know as a whole you guys just came back from uh, Jenkins World, uh, and I'm not sure if you were there, but uh, we, do, we, do like, we do like to find out where people are going to be speaking or educating and, and interacting with the public. So where can we find you? in the upcoming months, just so that other people can come see you talk and uh, learn from you? Uh, we intend to be, a, be at DockerCon, um, as, um, uh, as I said. Uh, KubeCon is another forum where you'll find Cluster HQ or representative thereof. Uh, the next one is November 8th uh, in Seattle. 
and this is the Kubernetes uh, conference. So the orchestration framework uh, and um, uh, container runtime conferences are places where we we are there uh, all the time. Um, but uh, you know, uh, if it is a a pressing issue that uh, anyone wants to uh, to discuss with me, I mean, I'm always available. This is the world of uh, you know Twitters and and Slacks and chats. So Sandeepan at clusterhq.com. And so yeah, we we like to tell people that next. You you spoiled my question. Uh, so Twitter, if we want to find you on Twitter, where do we find you at? Uh, we have a Cluster HQ handle, and uh, just uh, find uh, Cluster HQ. Uh, what that does is it sort of just uh, uh, makes sure that somebody is there to uh, to answer all the all the Twitter questions. So just use the uh, Cluster HQ. And do you have your own GitHub or uh, use the Cluster HQ GitHub as GitHub, well? I have GitHub. Yes, uh, my Sandeep and Banerjee is my GitHub, and uh, uh, again, you can. And go check out the contributions. Awesome. Uh, and and our last question, let's see if we can get this one out of you. We like to talk to people about either like books or websites or blogs or anything you're reading. Doesn't have to be job focused or technology focused, but you know, there's always like some great book somebody just read that somebody else would be like, oh man, that's awesome and pick it up. So is there a book you're reading right now or something that's kind of, especially when you talk about all the things you think about at scale, I bet there's something cool coming out of that. So anything, anything you can suggest uh, for our listeners? Um, when I look at the you know ecosystem of the world that is going to be, uh, I see that as sort of a vast, empty, you know, open space where cities and and dwellings are just beginning to to turn up. And geographically, what this sort of connected me for a long time was with Central Asia, which is also a vast empty space, you know, rich with resources, which uh, are waiting, you know, us to go and explore it. So um, I would uh, uh, point your your listeners to a excellent uh, video on YouTube called The Fall of Otrar. Um, and uh, this is what I was watching over the last few days. And it is about how Genghis Khan and his armies uh, sacked Central Asia and how that world was reconstituted through through Mongol conquest. And I think there was a uh, newspaper or media poll uh, in the year 2000, which was trying to find the person of the millennium. And it was... Genghis Khan, whose uh, genes, uh, you know, uh, are the the most prevalent in in humanity. And if you think of, uh, you know, huge, huge changes in the world and how we, um, you know, all react to it, uh, some for the good, you know, some very destructive, some transformational, um, that, uh, you know, uh, Mongol conquest of Central Asia is something that has important lessons for all of us to learn. So check out The Fall of Otrar on YouTube, O-T-R-A-R. Awesome. So that that sounds like fun. And I uh, I literally just watched a documentary on YouTube the other day. It was kind of the first time I got, I started something for no reason and watched like two hours of YouTube where I, I learned a bunch of things about some crazy uh, penitentiary in, in the middle of Siberia where it takes like seven hours just to get there. Um, so that was also on YouTube. Anyways, I really, really appreciate Go ahead. No, no. I'm saying this is uh, uh, incredible uh, uh, journeys of discovery to be made in in many parts of the world. Yes, and uh, I mean the I, the whole concept of it taking seven hours just to get somewhere that there are a bunch of people who have to live there, um, and all of the um, 
the logistical nightmares that they have to deal with just that alone on that one spot and that's across the globe that probably gets multiplied all the time uh it's pretty cool stuff and it's always fun to learn those things i'm i'm now excited to go look to youtube so i want to get this show over so i can rush to youtube and watch the fall of octar so uh, i appreciate it again for our listeners uh i want you to tweet us you know how to do that we respond this is how we get people like cluster hq on get social with us we challenge you completely to do those things uh, and again sandy Pan, we really appreciate you joining us on the show today my pleasure today and uh, thank you for having me and uh, uh, good luck to all of your listeners uh, with the new stack thank you so much on behalf of the hot owl this is brian carpenter this is brent piatti have a great day